and welcome to the Light Plus podcast from Lighthouse. My name's Eva Rosen and I'm the curator in residence at Lighthouse between January and July 2019. This series of Light Plus is part of a programme of projects and events called Who's Doing the Washing Up and Where's the Sink? I'll be talking to artists, users, workers and collaborators whom I've been working with about the role of hospitality in arts organisations and specifically at Lighthouse. This first podcast features audio taken from a public event we held at Lighthouse on the 25th of April 2019 called Potential Worlds. My name's Eva and um, I'm currently the curator in residence here at Lighthouse and the programme that I'm running here is um, funded by a European grant and it's called Reimagine Europe and the project is asking uh, the 10 organisations involved to reimagine how we are organised, how we work with different practices, how we work with different audiences, how we work with each other and so I guess in terms of these big grants which are currently always asking us to reimagine our museums and institutions and projects. My interest and programme is trying to ask some questions back to that grant about if we are reimagining the institution whose voices are included, are invited and are present, what kinds of work are valued and not once we've reimagined ourselves, who's actually doing the work to kind of sustain those new models. And so the title of the next few um, events and workshops has an umbrella title of who's doing the washing up as a way to sort of ask back to this grant at the end of the day who's actually the one that's still here doing the cleaning up, doing the work and making it happen. So um, tonight is the first event in that um, in this programme and I guess one thing that is coming up um, all the time, not just in Brighton but in other places, is that spaces to meet, to organise from, to experiment are disappearing, are becoming um, snapped up by developers who are not prioritising that space, the space is becoming inaccessible, inaffordable. So I guess it's interesting to now be at Lighthouse, which has a lot of space, to think about who's using them, how are we using them, and when we say we, who do we actually mean by that? So, first of all, um, Alia Hussein will speak with Anna Bunting Branch. Alia is an artist based at Islington Mill Studios in Salford, and her practice approaches themes found within feminist science fiction, in particular the possibilities of co-sharing space. She has released two EPs of experimental electronic music with Manchester-based cassette tape label Sacred Tapes. And Anna is an artist and researcher, and again for Anna, science fiction from parallel universes to alien encounters and future worlds inform her work in painting, moving image and writing to express different relations to feminisms and its histories. And Anna and Alia collaborated for the first time last year on a project called Potential Worlds, which the talk tonight takes its name from. And Potential Worlds is a collaborative workshop-based project which uses sound, feminist science fiction and mark-making to explore different ways of experimenting with how we communicate and the languages available to us. And then Tarek, in the middle, um, is an artist and producer and co-founder and co-director of the amazing Marlborough Theatre in Brighton. Tarek also created Brownton Abbey, which is an Afro-futuristic space church-themed performance party that celebrates and centres and elevates queer, trans and intersex people of colour to creatively address systemic problems of inequality and isolation 
isolation for minoritized and marginalized communities. And then Claudia and Violetta here are part of the Devil's Dyke Network who hosted uh, an event here last month, which is absolutely amazing. And Devil's Dyke Network, if you don't know, is an inclusive platform in Brighton for poets, performers and artists. And the network showcases older and newer talents amongst feminist women, gender non-binary, lesbian and queer identified people of different origins and identities. Focusing on artists who have previously had difficult or complicated access to performing in other spaces. And the network arose from a collective desire between all of those involved, whether they're I guess, organizing and performing, um, to create a non-judgmental space for artists and audiences to grow, share, and amplify their stories and as a strategic space from which to make politics. So that's the amazing lineup for tonight. So um, I'll start with Ali and Anna. So drawing on our individual practices, um, the collaboration gave us the chance to explore um, our shared interests, so feminist science fiction, fan fiction, and world building. In our own work, both Alia and I often take feminist science fiction stories as the starting point for our own work. And the main inspiration for Potential World was the Native Tongue Trilogy, which is a, um, three science fiction stories written by um, the American author Suzette Hayden Elgin. Um, Elgin was a trained linguist, and she used science fiction as a way to stage an experiment in the development of a constructed language, which she called Ladan, meaning the language of those who perceive. And in the dystopian context of the novels, where women's right to legal, economic, or social freedom has been restricted by draconian laws, Lardan begins as a secret project to offer a language in which the unarticulated perceptions of women could find expression. So as it spreads beyond the homes of the linguist women in the book, um, Lardan promises a means of both political resistance and social transformation. So yeah, our own experiments with language construction were inspired by Elgin's Lardan model. And Elgin says that Lardan has specific words for chunks of reality that matter to women but have not been given names of their own before. And where Elgin created Lardan um, specifically as a women's language, as she described it, we wanted to take her feminist model as the basis for a more open-ended experiment. So reflecting on what the Lardan experiment teaches us, we wondered how can we move beyond existing dominant language and find other ways to communicate? What other forms of expression do we need to develop a new non-linguistic language? So it starts with the prompt, there ought to be a word. There ought to be a word for a particular experience or concept or sensation that we can't say in our own language. Our desire was to create a space in which we can share expressions of our own potential words, um, beginning with writing and discussion before traveling through into drawing and sound. So our own practices engage different gestures and senses through these embodied processes of, of making. And for us, the emphasis on sight, sound, touch and movement were important because they encourage participants to move from more traditional modes of communication, for example, using a, a dominant language like English, to a more experimental, uh, collaborative kind of expression, focusing on gesture, touch and listening. And so one thing that really interested us during the process was that 
Once we'd each identified our own potential words, beginning with this prompt, there ought to be a word. And exactly. we actually often someone else's observation that people felt really moved by or resonated with them. So although it, it might not have been something that they could put into words, they absolutely recognised this gap in language and the need for there to be a word to express this. Um, and the resulting word forms are expressions of the, that kind of shared perception. So they're collaborative creations rather than individually built worlds and then as we started to catalogue the words that we'd created in the workshop and so we picked up on some recurring themes that the group had kind of identified so things like relation sensory sex situation smell social talking taste touch unconscious water and so each of these kind of words in the index indicates the places where dominant language has failed and we need to move into a different form of articulation and that was something that became very important for us. I wanted to share a few examples of the potential words that uh, were shared by participants in the Bergen workshop. There ought to be a word for the way you feel when you've just woken up from a dream and you are full of a different reality, neither awake nor asleep. So yeah, we're going to end with some um, sounds um, that we recorded during the workshop. And so something that we kind of wanted to think about as we bring the project to Brighton is that, um, and also in response to some of the, the ideas that um, Eva was talking about, is that you can perceive each potential word as an opening into its own world. But something that we also really encourage people in the workshop to think about is how we can create a new shared space together as we build this new language. We really look forward to continuing this exploration of uh, limits of existing languages and how we can move beyond them to open up new ways of communicating together. So thank you very much. So, hi everybody, I'm Tarek El Mutawakil, co-artistic director and lead um, artist and creator of Brownton Abbey. I'm going to tell you about my journey to Brownton Abbey, which as mentioned before, is an Afrofuturistic, space church themed performance party that centres, celebrates and elevates queer people of colour, especially those of us with disabilities. I have had an untraditional route into the arts. Uh, I work at the Marlborough. I started working in the pub at the Marlborough when I was at university, got a job there um, and I worked in the pub for seven years. I decided that after meeting lots of people who were making things happen, like maybe I should take over the theatre. I saw there was a possibility of running the space upstairs. Uh, I quickly formed a team who actually had some theatre background. Well, I met David Shepard, who um, is a co-director co with me. Um, and since then, the Marlborough's grown in many ways. And to some point, we took over the pub as well to try and make some integrity of the whole building so that there was interaction and actually like make the theatre into a real queer space. And in time, we also learned, um, sometimes through public call-outs and call-ins, that um, we needed to have a more intersectional Perspective. So that's really kind of, I think, informed a lot of the practices that we've done since then and how we like to program. It wasn't until two years ago we got some funding that actually centred me as a queer person of colour in the arts programming a, f a fringe festival and recognising that somehow I'd managed to go through a whole load of barriers and have some control over what's being programmed in a theatre space. Two years ago, I got some funding. So I went to this thing called IETM, Informal European Theatre Meeting, um, which was in Valencia. 
and I spent three or four days with queer people of colour among at a, at a networking event. I invited all the people, all the brown folks, to come over, and we had an amazing conversation. And it sparked something. I was like, "Oh, this is this is like some gold happening here." I'd never had a conversation with queer people of colour. So many of us actually just being able to kind of have a conversation that went forwards. And I had assumed maybe previously that lots of other people got to have those groups. Um, but there I asked if that was a common experience and actually there everybody else was all also like no this happens very rarely this is not a thing in my life and so that sped me to wanting to make spaces that exist like that fast forward to Brownton Abbey so um, after a breakdown I really needed something to heal me and I recognised that the most healing things had been for me spending time with other queer people of colour who had maybe some sort of experience like mine, or the feeling of not ever being able to be your full self. I've been doing alien stuff at festivals for a long time, and in, a year or so ago I did a, an event, and all, the, all my aliens that were with me happened to be people of colour, and we also happened to be gods that year, because of the theme. It was celebrity, and I was like, let's take it up a notch. Um, so we were, celeb- we were alien gods, and that felt really amazing to be treated differently, but in a way that we had decided how it wanted to be um, and I wanted to kind of use that as a seed for Brownton for, for, for this event um, but also and that then led me to Afrofuturism which is an amazing platform in which to kind of just create a world um, and yeah so Brownton Abbey centres and celebrates and um, um, elevates otherness I also actually on my Brownton Abbey journey recognise that I also have disabilities I, rec- I realise that I have I was diagnosed with hearing loss in, when I was 25, but I'd probably always had it, but no one noticed. Um, so, um, and also a couple of years ago, I reckon I had, recognized I had ADHD, and those two things kind of work together in a unique way, or maybe against each other as well. No, actually, it was a doctor once asked me, they were like, are, are you registered as disabled? And I was like, I didn't know there was a register. And that's allowed me then to feel confident enough to go for funding, and the Disability Arts has been really helpful for me with Brownton Abbey. Um, I think there's been a lot of recognition of the intersectional lens and actually the authenticness of all the people involved in making it, all the paid jobs for people within Brownton are all queer people of colour um, and often with disabilities um, some visible, some not. Anyway, that's me thanks for listening Hello everybody Uh, we are Devil's Dyke Network, Violet and Claudia Okay, so in um, 2017, um, Brighton already had quite um, a big poetry scene, but it felt like it was dominated by what we categorically refer to as cis white men. So there was this um, need and desire to um, create a space in Brighton that would define poetry not as some. Um, sophisticated wordplay but as um, you know very necessary and essentially political distillation of experience this need and this desire it connected five people our original five who actually like knew each other very very loosely through some spaces of um, University of Sussex and some queer activist uh, circles um, yeah, it just simply like wasn't a thing and then it became one because um, I guess it was exciting and it felt important and everybody 
just felt the joy of being in this witchery coven. Um, and the result is Devil's Dyke Network and uh, Devil's Dyke Nights, which are these events that we host um, with poetry and music performances and visual art by self-identified women and non-binary folk who, I don't know, whose work shares ideas of queer and intersectional feminism. And more than that, it's, it's, it was, came out of a desire to create kind of intimate, complex relationships within a network. So we're specifically not a group to, to deliberately characterize ourselves as a network. was like a, an attempt to make the membrane even more permeable. Spontaneous flourishing is definitely a part of what we were trying to achieve. Um, beyond identifying with feminist principles, it's an attempt to kind of share our experiences, to give space to people, to give respect, to love each other, to listen to each other, to treat each other as family and yeah, just being friends within that wider network and, and that as a kind of a better way of working together. But yeah, um, we don't have our own physical space and it's very complicated to get one in Brighton so we have to rely on other usually like institutionalized organizations who have access to space. We had to figure out what it means to be a non-profit um, network um, and present ourselves in kind of public spaces and, and what it means to be defined within those spaces that are already pre-existing um, because we are kind of explicitly non-profit um, and we're not just like non-commercial but also kind of anti-profit in capitalist terms um, and to that end, it's, it's particularly awkward because there are no public spaces in a way, especially in Britain. So much space is, everything is neoliberalized and kind of, everything is capital. Land is capital and even even where we are right now, Lighthouse is not, it's not a kind of state-owned body, we, you know. Um, and so it's very difficult when you're trying to find those spaces to meet and you're trying to find those spaces to exist and to thrive. Um, there isn't really anywhere to, to go in Brighton unless you're going to a park, but then that's not particularly accessible um, and not great on rainy days. Um, and so in kind of being self-organized and kind of external from kind of official bodies, you embrace a precariousness um, that becomes ever more reliant on, or at least at the mercy of, pre-established systems of power. Um, and so kind of in lieu of that public space, as we would define it as public, we're kind of working with um, art, organi art organizations because it's kind of the closest thing that we've got. Um, and it's not always on terms that makes our organization sustainable. So we have, we're committed to accessibility, so we won't um, demand a compulsory entry fee from our community. But then our, our labor and our performers' labor is unpaid. And so quite often any money we do get from donations from the community comes to the cost of the hosting organization. Um, so in that way, we're kind of not economically liberated or independent. And that's something that we need to work on and think about, okay, well, how, where are we going with this? And how, how do we make that sustainable? And how do we make our, liberate ourselves in that way? Um, but at the same time, being affiliated with and embraced with institutions kind of offers a legitimization almost, which kind of slightly compensates um, f for the problematic conditions on offer. So in a sense, we are kind of supported by these institutions by being in there, but it's not necessarily on our own terms. Thank you so much to all of you. I was just making some notes on my phone, not texting.
interesting while he was <laughs> doing that. Um, just because there was um, maybe one question I wanted to ask or bring up before we open up for a few more questions. And when you were both um, talking about Brown to Nabby and the Devil's Dyke Network about this yeah, need for you to um, try things, to be organic and messy, to take risks to maybe invest in something which is going to be long term which is gardening which is trusting in those shoots and half of them won't continue and half of them will grow into things you then have to care for and keep caring for and also what you were saying about having a good time through it and and I'm just thinking all the time because I work in institutions and I'm in charge of this grant which is about reimagining institutions about how at the moment one of the biggest things that um, has sort of uh, (laughs) changed through me administrating this grant which then makes it possible to do other things is to write a really long email to justify why most of my expenses have been food or snacks created for projects and how um, they came back to me because they weren't valid expenses because expenses for producing projects are often um, materials in another format and um, those sort of tiny administrative things especially managing these grants and maybe where that potential is to change funders views organizations views of what kind of activity needs to be invested in and I feel like at the moment so much needs to be documented and described and justified and why do you need to feed people um, and, um, and uh, we want you to increase and double your audiences and we want those audiences to yeah come from some margin um, into our institutions but they don't need to be fed or watered or looked after yeah and I think the gardening term is a really interesting way to think about how to also nurture and I guess this washing up question also comes because it's a thing that no one ever really wants to think about it's like it's the sort of dirty stuff that gets left at the end of the event but someone has to do it and someone has to take care and look after those things which you start and often grants are and institutions are interested in the activity if people come, if we get good photos, if we haven't spent too much on snacks. Um, and then, you know, who's caring for those communities afterwards? And I feel like what you're both saying from your experiences of organising is a lot to do with sort of how funding and always looking for the next thing, but also spaces. Um, so I'm not really sure if that's a question. It's more just something which I sort of pulled from both of you and both of you are thinking about this gardening and also, yeah, thinking back to sort of science fiction and Afrofuturism of sort of trusting in these other ways of doing things that you don't quite know what the what's going to happen, but that's where the potential of it is. So I don't know if you have any questions for me as the grant holder <laughs> or institution or if we want to open up to other questions. I was just going to respond to that, maybe we're just with my own experience of Brownton, um, of that part of the joy of it is the recognition that we don't often have like access to glorious spaces. And so we did the first ones up in Brighton Dome in the concert hall, and it completely changed um, what that normally feels like to be in there. It was really playful and joyful and... Um, you could you could be whoever you wanted to be. It was really it was beautiful, but there was a, so then going forwards, it kind of like it, it instilled that it wasn't a play. I, recognizing that marginalized people are used to like turning a basement or their home or a warehouse or some alleyway or something into some some glorious haven for a few hours, and 
um, there's this idea of like actually I don't want to be doing that so when we are, when we're approached by festivals and bookers um, we make it very clear from the beginning that it needs to be a glorious colonial space <laughs> with very high ceilings um, and it just has it has to feel really glo- like that we're being spoiled it has to be a, feel like a space that we don't normally have access to and that we can also liberate for other people to enjoy to actually give it make give it give, make that change the access also it has to be wheelchair accessible on the dance floor um, so these are things now going forwards always remi- like is it accessible on the, on the dance floor in the rehearsal in the changing rooms um, in the toilets is there um, gender neutral toilets if not we need to make them otherwise we, we can't come um, will the security not police us that kind of thing um, and, and thinking about all those different barriers and then removing them basically to make sure that they don't happen and it becomes a really joyful space for everybody yeah I was thinking as well, what came to mind when you were talking is, because um, I used to do a lot of work at Lighthouse, whee, um, and just thinking about the people who make this space feel warm, like the people who are not normally at the front of the, the room kind of presenting to everyone. It's, it's um, Emma in the office, or oh, she's not here right now, but, um, you know, who really kind of welcomes people and, and makes them feel like... Um, that this is their home and she welcomed me and made me feel really comfortable and like at home in this in this space and I think it's those people who don't necessarily get credited for that work that are actually really important to the organisation um, and yeah like Jenny behind the bar, I think Jenny's also popped out ah, <laughs> Jenny behind the bar um, you know people don't normally recognise that that, that, that labour is actually really important as well as that you know you're working the bar and you're being really helpful and you know welcoming to people and um, yeah and just thinking about how we credit that kind of labour as well within these organisations because I think it's so important I tell a small story and then we can move on in the last organisation I worked in I got all of the uh, everybody who sells tickets, who does the cleaning who's the director, who's the curator credited on the exhibition handout in alphabetical order and then when I went back this year everyone was in alphabetical order apart from the director whose surname is W but he was first so now he's in column 4 where he deserves to be because you can't have everybody now but to call apart from the director and now Adan who's the cleaner is credited first but yeah but it's so interesting how still those even if you try to sort of push against those structures those like things that are instilled as the director being the most important person and they have a lot of responsibility and they do keep the organization running and we do hold them to account but they're often the ones that, yeah, are supported by a lot of us underneath them. And so thank you so much to Anna, Alia, Tarek, Violetta and Claudia and to Lighthouse and to Jenny behind the bar and Ben and Kizzy and everybody that's helped make tonight possible. And thank you all for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to this Light Plus podcast. If you want to find out more about this event or who's doing the washing up and where's the sink, then head to lighthouse.org.uk. In the next episode, artists Anton Katz and Maya Erstad share different ways of working with radio as tools for communicating, organising and listening to each other. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us, either on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps other people to find us too. Who's Doing the Washing Up and Where's the Sink is part of Reimagine Europe, 
her collaboration between Lighthouse and nine other organisations across Europe, co-funded by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union.